Genesis 19 is where we find ourselves today, verses 31 to 38, the final fallout of compromise. Last week in our time together, we went into the New Testament to consider Jesus' teachings wherein he appealed to the testimony of Lot to call men unto a personal readiness for the day of judgment. And that came after we walked through the account of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the lessons uh, from Lot most specifically directed toward the dangers of association with proximity to sinful people. We spoke of the fact that sinful proximity or proximity to sin is not necessarily in and of itself evil, that, that proximity to sin is not sin itself. There are many times, in fact, where proximity to sin is the right and necessary thing to do. In fact, I cannot reach sinful people if I do not place myself into the proximity of sin. There are those who also, by no fault of their own, must live in proximity to sin, whether that be through unbelieving parents or whether that be uh, through a wicked state, uh, such as the one that we live in and the proximity that we have here and, and, and many of us not having necessarily the resources to be able to up and move to another state or, or living in this country and, and, and us not having the means necessarily to uh, go to another country or maybe, maybe it would even, wouldn't even be better if we went to another country. And so there are elements of proximity to sin that are simply ours by, by nature of no fault of our own, just by nature of where we live or, or, or who we live among. And our warning was that while proximity to sin is not sin in and of itself, uh, unnecessary or inappropriate proximity to sin can lead one into sin and even when a man is doing right by maintaining proximity to sin as a, as a minister of the gospel or, or, or simply, again, through no fault of our own, living in this state or whatever it might be, this does not mean that proximity to sin will not come with consequences. Not judgments, mind you. God does not destroy the righteous with the wicked. God does not judge the righteous for the wicked sins, but certainly consequences. So that a child that has sinful parents, though he must live in that proximity to sin through no fault of his own, and God will not judge him for his parents' sins, as we talked about in Ezekiel, yet that does not mean that that child will not live through consequences of sin because of his parents. A citizen living in a sinful locality, a sinful state, a sinful nation... <laughs> Might, will not be judged with that nation for that sin or that, that locality for that sin, but that does not mean he will not suffer the consequences of those sinful policies, those sinful laws, those sinful, that sinful direction. And today we see a final consequence of Lot having chosen to live in the city of Sodom. And as we do so, let's remember where we came from in this. And in order to remember, I want us to rewind all the way back just briefly to Genesis 13. In Genesis 13, verses 8 through 13, the Bible says this, And Abram said unto Lot, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, between my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we be brethren. Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if thou wilt depart to the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zoar. Then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east 
and they separated themselves, the one from the other. Abram dwelled in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent toward Sodom. But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. So recall that Abram and Lot were seeing conflicts because they were both very wealthy men. They had a great deal of conflict because they had a great deal of cattle, and the land could not sustain both of them. So Abram, acting in love and humility, allows Lot to choose whichever direction he desired to go. And he said, you go that direction, I'll go the other direction. We'll put some distance between us so that our herds and our herdsmen aren't fighting because our herds are not fighting for the resources of the land. And Lot looked at the well-watered plains of Jordan, which were, the Bible says, like the Garden of Eden and the land of Egypt in fertility. And notice it specifically says that it was like that before God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. Right? Because when God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, not only did he rain down fire and brimstone, but he effectively salted the land so that it, it was no longer fertile. Right, the, the Dead Sea is dead, or the salt concentration is so high, excuse me. And then the, the land itself around it is also relatively infertile because the land has been salted. It has been made barren as a testimony of God's judgment against this sin. But at this time, it was well-watered, like the Garden of Eden or like the plains of Egypt. And Lot went in that direction. However, the Bible says that he did not just move into the plains that were well-watered and fruitful. Verse 12 tells us that he dwelled in the cities of the plains, and he pitched his tent toward Sodom. Though it was already understood at that time that the men of Sodom and Gomorrah were men of exceeding wickedness, and so Lot now, we find, is dwelling in the city of Sodom. Now, we fast forward to chapter 14, where Sodom and Gomorrah come together with three other cities to fight a confederacy of kings of the east, Chordeleomer and his confederacy. They lose that battle, and as a part of the consequences for losing that battle, they are pillaged and taken away, and Lot is taken with this army. Abraham then arms his servants and the servants of his friends, Eskel and Mamre, uh, as well as a couple others, and they go up and they fight a battle against this army and they uh, are successful. They win the battle, they destroy the army, and they bring back all of that spoil. Lot is returned to the land and Abraham refuses the spoil. He brought it all back, but he refused to take it. And if you recall why, in Genesis 14, verses 22 to 24, the Bible says, Abram said unto the king of Sodom, I have lift up mine hand unto the Lord the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from, uh, take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou should say I have made Abraham rich, Abram rich, save only that which the young men have eaten and the portion of the men which went with me, Anner, Eskel, and Mamre. Let them take their portion. So Abraham was well aware of the wickedness of this land. In fact, so wicked, so well aware of their wickedness, and so wicked was this land, land. The men of that land were so lacking in integrity that Abram was unwilling even to take that which was due to him as the one who won this battle, lest the king of Sodom should take credit for all of Abram's wealth. Lest in taking any of that spoil, the king of Sodom would then say, I gave Abram his start. I'm the one who gave Abram by giving him the spoil of the land, uh, of our land. It's my spoil. It's kind of like what um, Laban will say to, to, to Jacob in his day. These are my cattle. Those are my children. 
the idea of, I gave you everything that you have. Well, yeah, he worked for it. He earned it. But it, it did come from you at some point. But that's sort of an idea whereby Abram says, I do, the integrity of this man is so lacking that I will not even take what is due to me lest I be, my name be dragged through the mud and specifically the Lord's name be dragged through the mud lest Abram become a less effective testimony for God's blessing upon his life through it. Now fast forward again then to where we were the last couple of weeks in Genesis 19. We've explored that significantly now. And we find that Lot is still in Sodom for some reason. Though their wickedness was profound, for some reason Lot chose to stay there. And now God's long-suffering had given way to judgment. God spared Lot from that judgment because Lot was a righteous man. And God does not destroy the righteous with the wicked. The judge of all the earth will do right. He always will. But that doesn't mean that Lot was spared from all consequences, does it? And what did we see two weeks ago? Lot goes to his married daughters. He goes to his sons-in-law and he says, the Lord is about to judge this place. And his sons-in-law thought he was, one, uh, he was as one who mocked. Uh, they thought he was, he was joking. He was kidding that he wasn't being serious. They didn't think it was that big of a deal. And so as Lot is pulled out of the city with his wife and his two unmarried daughters, his married daughters, his sons-in-laws, perhaps grandchildren, stay in that city. Then they flee. And as they flee, having been told not to turn back, Lot's wife turns back and looks, chose to disobey the commandment of the angel, and she was turned into a pillar of salt. And so as Lot enters the city of Zoar, he watches as his daughters, his sons-in-laws, whatever family he has in, in, in Sodom, are utterly destroyed. And he sees his wife utterly destroyed. And it is he and his two unmarried daughters. And he is in Zoar, except that he doesn't stay in Zoar. And the Bible says he was fearful to stay in Zoar. And so was compelled to live in the caves of the mountains with his two remaining daughters. Because for whatever reason, in that city, he was fearful and he had to leave. And that's where we pick up in Genesis 19, looking at verses 31 and 32. The Bible says, and the firstborn said unto the younger, Our father is old, speaking of his daughters, and there is not a man in the earth to come in unto us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve seed of our father. So Lot and his daughters are in the mountains, and the narrative now connects us to a conversation between Lot's two daughters. The firstborn speaks to the younger, and she reasons that their father is getting older, Lot is getting older, and there's not a man on the earth who would marry them. Now let's think through what she is reasoning here and why. These two women lived with their parents in Sodom. Their older sisters, presumably older sisters, had been married. Maybe not older, but they had, had, they had sisters who were married to men of the city. And possibly from these unions, again, had come some grandchildren. Either way, these sisters and whatever children they had were caught up in the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. Furthermore, Lot's wife is now dead so that there was no prospect of having sons to carry on Lot's name, to carry on Lot's legacy. Uh, Lot did not any longer have a wife, uh, nor in that sense uh, grandsons to carry on Lot's lineage, Lot's legacy, Lot's name, unless they could get married and have children. And of course, this was a relatively big deal in that culture. Lineage has always been very important for humanity. 
We might speculate as to why, but at the very least, as it relates to men and the way men think, a man's lineage is the most clear and evident way that he can touch the world around him even beyond his own days. Men have always desired immortality of a sort. And there's only a few ways that man can have immortality. Since we lost that immortality uh, in, in, in that sense in Eden, men can build things and those things can last. Men can achieve things and those achievements can last. Except as Solomon said in his own day, all of the things that Solomon built for all of their grandeur and greatness were given to other men who subsequently ruined them. And even a, a, a reputation, a great name, right? Men who accomplished great feats. If they were to continue to carry on in their own lives, they would live to see the day that their greatness was seen as villainy. As we see with the great men of our day to day. The great men of our past, the men that you read about in the history books when you were a kid, are seen by the current generation as the villains of history. No longer great men. Now they are the villains. So then what does last? Well, at the end of the day, what Solomon said is what is true. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. What will last is faith, the things done in faith. But the closest that a man really comes to that immortality in this life is his lineage. That my, I live through my children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. That a piece of me continues on through them. I may not be a man of talent or of ability or of importance in any way, shape, or form, but even if my life doesn't leave a direct mark upon the world, the fact that I sent my children into that world means I have changed it in some way. The world is different because I have lived and it will be different in the future because of my children. Something of my influence, of my flesh and of my blood, of my efforts will carry forward in this world. And this is something that is of great value to a man. Purpose, meaning, impact. Things that men strive for. It's kind of baked into us. It's designed into us. And thus, for a man to watch his line end can be difficult. It's not the end of the world. It is something that a man works through. Many men have had to face it. Uh, all men, to some degree, will, will have to face it in, in a long-term way of thinking. It's not something that cripples a man to think about. But it is something that could trouble a man. The end of his line. To see that the lineage that has been carried forth in the world from generation to generation is no longer going to be in the history books. That there will not be the family name in the future, that sort of an idea. And we might wonder that this was somewhat even more important to Lot than it may have been to some other men, and perhaps not. But in Genesis chapter 11, verse 27, we see the lineage of Lot, and we find that he was the only son of his father, Haran. Lot was the only man who could carry forward his father's name, so that it wasn't necessarily even just about him, but he was the only one to carry forward his father's line. And now, if he does not carry forward that line, not only is he stopping his line, but he's actually stopping the line of his father as well. So perhaps Lot daughters had heard many times over the years. Again, I'm just speculating here. Perhaps Lot had been sitting with his wife in those years in Sodom, coming out from the gate and sitting with his wife and saying something to the effect of desiring that he and his wife would one day have a son that could carry on the name. 
Perhaps it was that he would look at his daughters and say, well, at least I have you all and we'll get you married and you can have grandsons to carry on the name. And maybe it was that at this point, with all of these unexpected things that happened because of the unnecessary proximity that Lot had to wickedness and the, and the, the, the proximity he put his family into, now his daughters are saying, well, dad used to talk about this and we don't see a way forward anymore. We don't see a way forward for him to realize his desire. Perhaps it is that, that that brought them to this place of sorrow. Here they are. It's Lot. It's, their two unmarried, it's his two unmarried daughters. And, and whatever happened in Zoar, they left fearful. And the daughters seem to believe at this point that no man's going to want them. No man's going to marry them. And again, this is perhaps the fallout from Lot going to the city of the plains first, rather than simply fleeing to the mountains at the beginning like the angel told him to. The angel regarded his claim, allowed him to go to Zoar. He ended up fearful in Zoar and ended up in the mountains anyway. Maybe it was that because they came directly from Sodom, the people of Zoar, that's why they were fearful. Maybe if they'd have gone to the mountains first and then they had come down out of the mountains at a later date, maybe the people wouldn't have been fearful. Maybe these things wouldn't have transpired. Maybe it wouldn't have been a problem. Maybe that fear would not have presented it to them. We don't know. But whatever happened in Zoar, it caused Lot to be very fearful and to flee to the mountains. And as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, perhaps it was that they were now seen as dangerous or uh, cursed or something. Well, you did just come from the city and you're the only ones that lived. What's wrong with you? We don't want it to have anything to do with you. We don't want fire and brimstone to come down on us next. You need to leave. And so maybe Lot's daughter sat in the mountains with their father saying, Who's going to marry us now? And perhaps this was the reference point from which the elder daughter of Lot made this statement that no man on earth would come in unto them. And we would imagine that this was a strongly exaggerated statement. We might imagine that they could have, if they were willing to have done so, traveled and found a new life somewhere. If they'd have traveled down to Egypt or traveled up to Haran again, maybe, maybe they would have found people and they could have settled back in. So there might be some emotional exaggeration here, but the fact of the matter is, in this moment, things were bleak, things were dark, things were unpleasant. It was a moment of grief, it was a moment of confusion, and these girls were not thinking about those things. And this is common, is it not? It is rare that a man or woman can, in moments of tremendous grief or loss or confusion, make dramatic decisions with clarity. It's for this reason that it's always a good idea, and oftentimes we would counsel people in those points of life not to make major life decisions immediately after following major life changes, right? Right after getting married, right after the death of a loved one, right after a major tragedy. In those moments, don't make major decisions about your life because those moments might not be moments of clarity due to grief and confusion and anxiety and the like. Sometimes life demands that we make decisions in a moment. But when it does not, there's a lot of wisdom in just slowing down, gaining perspective, seeking counsel, looking for clarity before coming to conclusions and making major decisions after change. 
Now, these girls in this moment felt hopeless. They felt rejected. They believed no man would ever have them, that they are tainted, that they are utterly lost. And so they feel as though there will never be an opportunity for them to do, uh, for them to do, or for their father to do the thing that their father so longed for, which was to preserve the seed of the, of the father, whether that be through him having children or through them having grandchildren. And there are some that would impute to these girls more impure motives than this, uh, that, that the, their motives for doing what they would do were compelled by lust or by selfishness or, or, or the like. And that's, of course, possible. But I think that the ones stated here make plenty of sense. I mean, they did grow up in Sodom. It's certain that they were at the very least, as evidenced by the decisions that they make here, they were compromised in their understanding of God's design. But they do give a very valid, clear reason here why they're doing what they're doing. And maybe it was a lie. Maybe it was a false pretense. Uh, but it seems likely that, that, that this is why. That they truly desired to preserve the seed of their father. And so they were going to make the decisions that they make in order to do so. And they concoct what is a terrible plan. They conspired to cause their father to become drunk, to become intoxicated. And when he was so drunk that he was no longer aware of his own actions, they would lie with him and seek to become impregnated by him so that they could preserve the seed of their father. Now, this was obviously a wicked plan. It's wicked to purposefully put another person into a place of mental or physical impairment for the purpose of imposing upon them something outside of their will. These girls brought their father to a place of such inebriation so as not only to impair his judgment, but likely also to cause him to be unaware of what he was doing. It would seem that that's the case, that he was unaware of what he was doing. Christian, if you ever find yourself in a circumstance where you must impair your own judgment or alter your clarity of thinking in order to do something, you probably shouldn't be doing it. If you ever find yourself in a place where you are compelled to cause another person to be impaired in their judgment or to alter their clarity of thinking in order to cause them to do something, you are not on righteous ground. These girls came up with this plan because the thing that they were going to do was not righteous. Their father would not have consented to it willingly or naturally. So they impaired his judgment and his thinking in order that they might impose it upon him. And while this account does not carry with it the typical spirit that underlies what we would call in our culture rape. That's something that we saw much earlier in the chapter when the men of Sodom were calling the angels out to be sodomized, where they were compelled by hatred. We're going to talk about that more in a minute, which is the characteristic emotion that underlies rape and where they were determined to commit their wickedness by force, which is the characteristic method of rape, yet in action, this, this action by his daughters on this day carries forward the exact same concept, engaging in sexual deviancy with an unwilling subject, in this case not by force, for they had no means by which to force this man, but rather in this case by deceit by taking from this man his mental agency as a means by which to compel him into an action outside of himself. And this is wickedness in every way. It was then, and it is now. And this lesson is just as relevant for us today as it ever was. Rape has always been a characteristic of sexual deviancy, whereby a person engages with another person in a sexual encounter of which he or she has no right 
by means of force or deceit or compulsion. And this is wickedness. As God has given humanity its natural sexual desire, he has likewise given us a righteous means by which to have that desire fulfilled in the one flesh union between a husband and a wife. And when this natural desire is fulfilled outside of God's expressly stated design, it, be, it goes from being God's design to being a perversion of God's design. By definition, a perversion, which is defined as a diverting from one's true intent or from one's natural object. When sexuality is expressed outside of the union that God has designed, it becomes perverted. We use that word perverted to speak of things that are sexually deviant, but then we say, well, we have the right to define that. Society does not have the right to define perversion. God has already defined perversion. God has defined perversion by defining what is natural and what is right and what is normal. And if it falls outside of that which is natural, right, and normal, it is by definition perversion, a distortion, something that is outside of that which is designed, a diverting from true intent or object. When sexuality is expressed outside of this intended objective design, it is sexual perversion. Now, I've said already that Lot's case falls into a little bit of an outside uh, uh, scenario, outside of that which we might call the norm as it relates to the sexual perversion of rape. But since we're on the rather unpleasant topic anyway, let's talk about the spirit that does characteristically underlie this sexual deviance. And this is where we go to another passage. Here in Genesis 19.32, it was the girl's misguided motivations for their actions that compelled them. And it seemed like their motivations, though misguided, were, were in a sense true. They wanted their father to have his seed preserved. We could say it was out of a love for their father that they did this thing. So they overrode his will and compelled his actions in such a way as to fulfill their desire in a manner which made some semblance of sense to them. Even so much so as to say that this is something that they're doing for their father, not for themselves. And again, this likely made sense because of their time in Sodom and their confused understanding of reality, their confused understanding of design, their confused understanding of sexuality. But there is characteristically a very different motivation for the sexual perversion that compels rape. Regardless of the methods employed to affect its deviance, and we find this motivation best expressed in the account of David's children, 2 Samuel 13. In 2 Samuel 13, David has a son, and that son's name is Amnon. And the Bible says that he loved his half-sister, a woman named Tamar. And they were both children of David, but they had different mothers. David had many wives, of course. Now, in our modern sensibilities, their closeness of relations would not have been appropriate, but that does not factor into the deviance here. That's not the deviance itself. Amnon, the Bible says, loved Tamar, using that word love in a manner that we'll see in a minute is, is, is um, not, not biblical love, but just in the idea of emotional love or desire unto a lust sort of an idea. But he felt inhibited in his inability to do anything about it. In other words, he wanted to uh, he, he wanted to um, take his sister to engage in a sexual act with his sister, half-sister, but he felt inhibited in doing so because she was his half-sister and he felt some sort of obligation to her to protect her, to care for her, something of that sort. 
However, one of Amnon's friends gave him evil advice and said, I think I can find a way for you to be able to go about doing this thing. Pretend to be sick and request that Tamar be the one that can care for you. And then when she cares for you, then you can force her into the sexual encounter. So the chapter tells us that Amnon did exactly that. He took this bad advice. And in 2 Samuel 13, beginning in verse 11, the Bible says this. And when she had brought them unto him to eat, so this would be food taking to Amnon who's in bed because he's not well. He took hold of her and said unto her, come lie with me, my sister. And she answered him, nay, my brother, do not force me for no such thing ought to be done in Israel. Do not thou this folly. So she is saying here, this is outside of design. This is not right. Don't do this thing. This is not right. And I, she says in verse 13, whither shall I cause my shame to go? You're going to shame me in this. And as for thee, Thou shalt be as one of the fools in Israel. Now, therefore, I pray thee, speak unto the king, for he will not withhold me from thee, howbeit he would not hearken unto her, but being stronger than she, forced her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred wherewith he hated her was greater than the love wherewith he had loved her. And Amnon said unto her, Arise and be gone. And she said unto him, There is no cause. This evil in sending me away is greater than the other that thou, di- that thou didst unto me. But he would not hearken unto her. So we see this scenario play out. Amnon grabs Tamar and demands her compliance with his deviance. She refuses, even encouraging him to ask their father that he might marry her, go through the proper process. And if she, she, she had no objection to marrying the man. She had no objection to becoming his wife. She just did not want to go be put into this place of shame and of defilement. But he wouldn't. And the reason why is because he did not actually carry a spirit of love into this interaction. He actually carried a spirit of hatred into this interaction. Though the text uses the word love, it actually wasn't love at all. It was about lust. It was about desire, whereby Tamar was not a person to be won or to be cherished or to be cared for, or to be enjoyed even, she was an object to be consumed. This is what his lust had driven him to. And it did not matter to him that she would now live in shame, that she would now live with the the, the fallout, mentally, physically, societally, of the shame upon her because she was not worthy of that care, because she was nothing, because she was an object to be consumed and then discarded. And this is one of the common threads connecting most sexual deviancy, Christian. That the deviant looks at the object of their deviance as exactly that, an object. Not a human made in the image of God. Not an eternal soul. Not the child of a father and mother. Not a sibling. An object who exists for their consumption, for their pleasure. No different than a piece of meat. And so the Bible says that upon fulfilling his lusts, the reality of the situation came to light. Amnon did not take her that he might make her his wife. Amnon took her, used her, and then hated her, rejected her, discarded her, because that is what he was doing from the beginning using her as an object of, dis- of, of consumption. And so when he was finished with her, he discarded her. 
So that the Bible says the hatred wherewith he hated her was greater than the love wherewith he had loved her. This is the spirit of rape every single time. This is the spirit of pornography. This is the spirit of deviancy. And this is exactly right. And this is what, what, what we see every time with sexual deviancy. To whatever degree a man might care for a woman, at the point in which he is willing to objectify her in a sexually perverse manner, out of bounds, out of design, out of God's provision, to that degree it is not love in his heart. It is object, uh, objectivism, hatred, a loathing of her person, a rejecting of her personal dignity. And I speak here of the worst application of the truth found in rape, but as I said already, it's not just rape. We fool ourselves if we think that this is not the exact same spirit that undergirds all sexual deviancy, be that prostitution, pornography, online or otherwise. Pornography is a multi-billion dollar industry built around the objectification primarily of women for the sake of the satisfaction of men's sexual desires. It's a perversion. It's outside of God's will. It's outside of God's design. And I speak to men directly because men are designed to be visual and so are so much more susceptible to this sexual temptation than women are. But of course, we know that women can struggle with this too. And I'm going to speak to women today also. But I'm not saying when I'm talking to men, I'm talking to men because I know that this is primarily a struggle for men. And it is only in a culture of uh, the, the scourge of feminism that has brought women to the point where they feel as though they need to objectify men in the same way men are naturally uh, compelled to objectify women. So I'm going to speak to men here, but... but because that, that's the natural application, but, but it does go both ways. Men, when you pursue pornography to indulge your sexual desires and fantasies, what you are actually doing is you are utterly objectifying that woman. You are turning her into a piece of meat for your consumption to be enjoyed and then discarded. And the same thing, it's the same thing that Amnon did to Tamar. You get what you want out of her and then you say, be gone from me. And it's really easy now because all you have to do is click X on that browser. You don't even have to look that person in the eyes. But it's the same spirit. It's to blaspheme the image of God in that person. And for our married men, or even those who are intending to be married one day, and so are reserved for someone specifically, it is to step outside of faithfulness to your wife, to your wife-to-be. This doesn't just begin at marriage, men. You're going to marry someone someday, be faithful to them today. Start today. It's to step outside of that faithfulness. Now, it's not to the same degree that Amnon did. It's not to the same degree as adultery. It's not the same degree, but it's the same spirit of adultery. In the same way that hating your brother in your heart is not the same degree as murdering him. But as Jesus taught in the, in the Gospels, it is the same spirit as murdering him. It's the thing that undergirds. What undergirds the rapist? What undergirds the murderer? What undergirds the rapist is this kind of objectification. What undergirds the murderer is that kind of hatred. It's the spirit, the same spirit. To this end, we must avoid this sin. And it is a sin which ensnares men, destroys their relationships with the women in their lives, and degrades women in their eyes. Now, we live in a pornographic culture. One can hardly even go into a store without seeing soft pornography on its walls. For that matter, one can hardly go into a store without seeing 
soft pornography being worn by the women who are around them. And in such a culture, that is our cross to bear. You say, well, pastor, how can we bear it in such a culture? I would be willing to bet that we are not the first culture that has had to deal with that. I'd be willing to imagine that in Ephesus, back in the day, where they had a temple erected to this woman, Diana, and they had temple prostitutes all over it, and it was a place where people came from all around the world in order to perform deviant sexuality at this temple, I would imagine that the people of Ephesus had a struggle of their own in this area. I'd imagine that we are probably not the first generation of men to struggle. However, there is something unique about this generation, and that's how easy it finds its way into our homes. I don't know that there's ever been a generation where it's been so easy for it to find its way into our homes, where a dad cannot just lock his doors at night and say, my children are safe from this. Because it's, it's on all of those glowing screens all over the place in, in your house. And in such a culture, we have a cross that is to bear. To oper uh, the operative goal is not to avoid seeing indecency. It is everywhere. Every man is going to see it all the time. No man here will be successful in in, in, in not seeing indecency unless he's able to completely cloister himself off from the world that is around him. So the objective then is twofold, men. First, protect yourselves from the deeper dangers of pornographic material. That's primarily a function in our culture of internet. That means you ought to have filters on your internet. That means you ought to strongly guard your social media use, which is the primary avenue now of such things as far as ensnaring people. The, 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 the places to find pornography, you go out and you find them, but it's not like when I was growing up as a kid. You remember the early days of the internet, 56K modem days, where just pop-ups everywhere? And if you were just going looking for anything random, you'd get a pop-up with pornography on it. You couldn't avoid that. Nowadays, we're not in that place anymore. The internet's no longer the Wild West like it was in those days. Nowadays, you go and looking for it if you want to get to that, that kind of stuff. Nowadays, the place where they go fishing, it's not, not pop-ups anymore. Fishing is now social media. That's the place where they fish. That's the place where they go looking to ensnare the next generation of addicts, the next generation of objectifiers. So be careful. Guard yourself against those things knowing what they represent. But second, it is incumbent upon men to both learn personal self-discipline, but all the more so to foster a strong personal relationship with Jesus Christ to secure the means by which to reject, not to dwell on, not to entertain, but to reject the influence of pornography that you will have in front of you invariably in this culture. In other words... Yes, there's, some, there's things to be said for filters and discipline and all that. That's, that's all good and important. But you're not going to be able to avoid it uh, through that. So then, what is the key? Well, we've talked about it last few Sunday schools. We talked about it a little bit. Maybe not the last few, few before that. I remember having a conversation recently with the church about it uh, in one of our interactive settings. That as you walk in the Spirit, as you maintain a close relationship with the Lord, 
then when you come to those things in your life that are, are attempting you to step into wickedness, you have two choices now and you have a decision to make. Is this wickedness worth what will be lost in relationship? And I guarantee you this, men, if you're walking in the spirit and you're walking close to your savior, there is nothing in heaven or earth that you're going to see by way of sin that you are going to say, indulging that will be worth the consequences, will be worth the loss of fellowship, will be worth losing, quenching the spirit of God, grieving the spirit of God, not having the spirit of God actively working through me. And so you weigh those in the balance and you are drawn to your savior as you are nearer to him. Now, again, there's other elements to this, obviously. There's elements of habit, of addiction, of such, and all of those things. Those things do take discipline, can need accountability. I'm not saying those things are not, not, not important, but any, any sin in the scriptures, the Bible talks about overcoming sin. It is not Moral and religious people overcome the deficiencies in their lives through self-discipline. Christians overcome the deficiencies of their lives through Christ by drawing near to their Savior. The knowledge of the holy is understanding. The fear of the Lord is wisdom. It is the knowledge of God. That is why Colossians 1 and 2, Ephesians 1 through 3, Paul says, increase in the knowledge of God. And then after he's exhorted them to increase in the knowledge of God, then he tells them, put off the old man and put on the new. Why? Because you're not going to do that through discipline. You're not going to do that through your flesh. You're going to do that through the spirit. And as you walk in the spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Galatians 5 tells us. Galatians 5.16 says, clearly, walk in the spirit and he shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And so we learn to guard our hearts and our minds, men, to see things without dwelling upon them, to remain faithful to God, to our spouses in the midst of a perverse culture. And this is entirely possible to do. The Christian life is not a life simply of avoiding temptation to evil. The Christian life is a life of living with such devotion to Christ and a love for Christ that we refuse those temptations. We don't yield to those temptations because our fellowship with Christ is of far more importance to us than that momentary pleasure with, uh, of sin. And this is the essence of a life of faith. Described well in Hebrews 11, speaking of Moses, verses 24 to 26. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproaches of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Moses said, there are things that I could have here in Egypt, and they're alluring, but they are not as alluring to me as the riches and the treasures of eternity. I will take the reproaches of Christ over the treasures of Egypt because the reproaches of Christ lead to a far more lasting and valuable reward. This is the call that we have throughout our lives, men, to esteem the sacrifice, the mental and physical discipline of our hearts of greater importance in order that we might be right with God than the pleasures of sin for a season. This was the determination of Joseph when he was tempted in his own day unto sexual deviance. Potiphar's wife tempting him to make her his mistress. And he says in Genesis 39, 7 through 9, 
It came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said unto his master's wife, notice his reasoning here. Not, well, you're an ugly woman. Not, well, I've, I, I've got to keep working up in the ranks. It's, my master wadeth not what is with me in the house, and he hath committed all that he hath unto my hand. My master trusts me. There is none greater in this house than I, neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. Notice then this final idea. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against Potiphar? No. You? No. My position? My responsibility? Uh-uh. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Because God is watching. Dark room, curtains closed, no one's here, God is there. There's always someone watching, Christian. And this is our charge, men. That we would determine in ourselves not to pursue the lust that has engulfed our culture, but rather to unfold into God's design. You struggle with lust, God has a solution. God has a design. Get a husband, get a wife. Love your husband, love your wife. Allow that spouse to be your joy and your satisfaction all the days of your life. If you need help, come see me. You're not the only man to struggle. Okay, so that's the men. Let's talk to the women. Women. We live in perhaps the most unique of times. It used to be that there was a class of women who were willing to make objects out of themselves for one reason or another. These women would be alternately called prostitutes or harlots or the like. They were universally derided in their society, understood to be women who had sold themselves for something, usually money. They were women of ill repute by definition. Usually they came only from that part, portion of society where they did not have anyone to protect them or care for them. They had no fathers, they had no brothers, they had no family member to actually care for them. They had no means by which to take care of themselves and so they fell into the only thing that they could do as a means by which to care for themselves. They never saw any value in themselves so they never cared that no one else saw value in them so they were treated as a piece of meat all the time and they felt as though they were not worth more than that piece of meat that they were treated as and that's been characteristic in our society as to those women that would fall into such a lifestyle. They were seen by society as disgraced because they were engaged in a lifestyle which is, in fact, disgraceful. But it's not that way anymore, is it? The satanic doctrine of feminism has now fully bloomed in our culture. And so women are now encouraged to degrade themselves in this way before men. And the internet has made this degradation so accessible that now any woman can pursue it and she can do so in a manner that does not necessarily affect the rest of her public life. She does not have to announce herself to be a prostitute in order to be one. She does not have to not have friends or family that care for her to protect her. She just has to not tell them. To operate in this, this manner of personal degrading of herself in an anonymous manner. 
And there are many ironies to this. That feminism has created a world where men can indulge every lust that they have toward women and degrade them with any sort of expectation of commitment or shame. Feminism has done that to women, not patriarchy. Where women, in the name of equality, now give men exactly what they want without any substance or value in return. It used to be that if a man wanted the love of a woman, if he wanted to be with a woman, he had to commit himself to her. He had to marry her. He had to be willing to provide for her because she says, no, you may not have me unless you provide for me, take care of me, commit yourself to me. Now man can have whatever he wants, whenever he wants, and feminism demands, feminism demands that she not commit herself to him, that he not commit himself to her. Feminism demands that he not marry her or provide for her. Feminism demands that this strong woman allow herself to be an objective, to be used and abused without anything in return. To that end, women in the Western world have been utterly duped. And now a large portion of them from a very early age, and by very early age, I mean like preteen, are on their smartphones, they're on Instagram, they're on TikTok, they're on the various social media, particularly social media, giving away their purity and their dignity in a desperate attempt to have men who they do not know who flatter them, flatter them more. Men who do, they do not know affirm them. Being driven to more and more degrading and extreme levels of exposure so that they continue, can continue to feel affirmed and I'll use the word loved, although we know that that's not what it is. And that desire within a woman for those things, affirmation, love, these are wonderful things. They are designed by God. They are baked into a woman by God. As God has built men's sexuality around visual attraction, God has built women's sexuality around being desired. It is natural and it is good. Women want to feel desired. That is a good thing. It is a desire which compels her love and her loyalty and that is a good thing. But then she gives it away to strangers on the internet. And they do not have the spirit of love. They have that spirit that Amnon had. They want something from her. They will tell her what she needs to hear to get it. And then they will discard her like an old pair of shoes. They will hate her. Because they always hated her. Because she was always an object to be used. And then abused. And then discarded. Women, you are made in the image of God. Christian women, you are a child of the King of Kings. Don't sell yourself like that. Don't degrade yourself like that. It isn't empowerment, that's a lie. It isn't personal agency, that's a lie too. You are degrading yourself. You are debasing yourself. You are shaming yourself. You are giving away something that was given to you by God to hold in trust for a husband, for one who would care for you and love you and give you that which you seek. And you're doing it for nothing or for money, which is less than nothing. And fathers, it is for this reason that you need to be active in your daughter's life. Know her. Talk to her. 
Make sure she understands the security of your affection, your affirmation. Make sure she doesn't feel the need to run into strange men on the internet to get that affection. Now, there will come a day when what she desires is more than you can give her, where the affection that she desires is the affection of a husband, not just of a father. That transition inevitably happens in the lives of those who God has called to be married. It's there. Because she's transitioning to the desire for a husband. At that point, she needs a husband, right? You, you, you can't meet her needs beyond that point. But in those years of her vulnerability, particularly, in those years of transition, in those what we would call today the teenage years, make sure that you're there, that you're stable, that you're listening, that you're communicating. Make sure she doesn't need to run to someone else to feel that love, to feel that affirmation. I mentioned already, it has been historically known that generally speaking, when you, when, when you would look at the, the girls that uh, pursued that degraded lifestyle, you would generally say, 90% chance she doesn't have a father in her life. 90% chance she doesn't have a brother looking out for her. Why do we say that? Well, because those that recognize they have a base of stability are much more protected, not just physically, not just from the guys that would come around to degrade her, but emotionally. Make sure she doesn't need to run to someone else because someone else will often come with strings attached. Now, there's one more thing I need to say about this all today, but first, let's finish the passage. Uh, we're there in Genesis 19, looking at verses 33 through 38. And they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he perceived not when she lay down, nor when she arose, and it came to pass on the morrow that the firstborn said unto the younger, Behold, I lay yesternight with my father, let us make him drink wine this night also, and go thou in and lie with him, that we may preserve seed to our or of our father." And they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he perceived not when she lay down, nor when she arose. Thus were both the daughters of Lot with child by their father. And the firstborn bare a son, called his name Moab, the same as the father of the Moabites unto this day. And the younger, she also bare a son, and called his name Ben-Ami, the same as the father of the children of Ammon unto this day. So the daughters enact their plan. They both become pregnant and their two children will end up becoming the fathers of these great nations of Moab and Ammon, two nations which both will become great enemies of Israel in their day. And of course, this is tragic. Uh, and we already talked about that a little bit when we talked about uh, Abraham having a child with Hagar, Ishmael, right? And the consequences of uh, such deviations from God's design and those consequences are uh, 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 wonderfully metaphorically portrayed here in the fact that these two righteous men ended up becoming the fathers also of the enemies of their own people through deviancy, through breaches of God's design. But the final thing I'd, I'd like to think about goes back to Lot. We've talked about the spirit of rape, the sexual degradation, perversion, objectification, but there's one more thing here. Now, the Bible has much to say about the dangers of alcohol as one of the many mind-altering substances which inhibit proper reasoning and confuse good judgment. I'm not going to speak today on the actual issues surrounding alcohol. We recognize that the Bible does not anywhere state explicitly 
that it is explicitly sinful to put substances in our body which can affect our biological functions, our mind, and such. It does state plainly, however, that such substances are dangerous because at which point we consume them to the degree that they don't just affect us, but they inhibit or override our thinking, our mentality, our function, we have stepped into a place that is outside of righteousness. That's what Ephesians 5.18 says when it says, and be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. At which point a substance is in my body to the extent that it overrides the ability of the Spirit of God to be the singular directing force in my life. I am in a place of sinfulness because I cannot be walking in the Spirit if I cannot be following the Spirit because the Spirit of God is overridden in my life by some substance. That means I'm walking in the flesh. And that's all I'll say about the fact that Lot's daughters chose wine, chose alcohol as the method of drawing their father into a state of intoxication, whereby he was unable to discern the perversion that he was engaged in. But there is something else. Lot would have needed to drink considerable amounts of wine to put himself into a state where he was absolutely outside of his own understanding. Now, maybe he was already using alcohol. Maybe it was not hard for his daughters to convince him of this. Maybe after he had lost his family, his wife, his daughters, his sons-in-laws, maybe grandchildren, after he had lost his fortune and everything that he had had that he had built up in Sodom, his prospects for the future, now he's in a cave hiding from everyone. He has his two unmarried daughters and and maybe he agrees with them that they're never going to be able to get married now. And maybe he's absolutely at the end of himself, confused, frustrated, and he's drinking his sorrows away. Maybe he's already in that state. Maybe he was already despondent. I wouldn't be surprised if he was. However, the, when the daughters concoct this plan, they, they speak of bringing him to a, 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 an intentional state for an intentional reason. And at the end of the day, Lot... He didn't fall asleep and have his daughters pour alcohol into his mouth. Let's just put it that way. He consumed this stuff. He put himself into the position for his daughters to do this thing to him. And once again, this is absolutely taboo in our culture. So let's just go ahead and say it. It's called victim blaming in our culture. If I tell you that Lot shouldn't have ever been in that situation because he shouldn't have been drunk to begin with, the subset of our culture will say that I'm marginalizing the wrong done to him, that I'm blaming the victim, that I am uh, 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 taking the, the actions of his daughters and I'm blaming him for it. If, if, if I am, so be it. Lot didn't need to be in that situation to begin with, did he? I mentioned a couple weeks ago that in self-defense culture, we talk about not breaking the rules of stupid. There's four of those. Don't be in stupid places, around stupid people, at stupid times, doing stupid things. If you avoid the rules of stupid, you're going to be in a much better place in your life. You're not going to be put in a place where you didn't mean to have wrong done to you. You didn't mean to get caught up in wrong, but you were. Well, it's probably because you broke one of those rules. You're around people you shouldn't have been around. You're around people doing something that they shouldn't have been doing. You were there at a time that nobody should be doing it. You were at a place that you shouldn't have been. None of those things were necessarily sin in that you did them. 
but they led you to something that you wouldn't have had to be at if you wouldn't have put yourself in that, un that foolish place to begin with. And while it's absolutely uh, not the case, and I wish it was, I'd love to imagine that you and I could walk down a dark alley at 2 a.m. on a Friday night, past a group of, uh, of drunk guys, and be just fine. We're not doing anything wrong. We're just walking past some people. They're making decisions. We're not. Uh, it's just, we're, 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 we're just doing what we're doing. I'd like to think that we lived in a world where we could do that. But that's probably not the case. And if Lot hadn't drunk himself into inebriation, his daughters could not have done to him what they did to him. Christian, when we put ourselves in compromising places, ingesting compromising substances, dressed in compromising clothing, around compromising people, you should not be surprised if your dignity gets compromised. Parents, the same thing is said as it relates to your house. If you bring compromised things into your house, if you allow compromised things to exist in your home in an appreciable way, don't be surprised if that compromise has consequences. If you open the world of the internet and especially social media to your children without protection, without accountability, particularly when your children are in their most vulnerable, formative years, don't be surprised if they are convinced by someone to compromise themselves. themselves. I'm not trying to make you paranoid, but we would all do well to have a godly fear of the capacity for wickedness to enter into our homes through the internet. For all the things which Lot's daughters chose to do here that were wrong, and those things are very real, no question, so much so that I effectively told you today Lot's daughters raped him Lot could have cut it all off at the pass simply by refusing to become drunk with wine. Proverbs 27, 12 tells us, a prudent man foreseeth the evil and hideth himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. Christian, we need to be men and women of integrity. We need to have the spirituality and the dignity and the love for God and the love for others to avoid temptations and snares. But then we also need to be prudent people. We need to assume the wisdom sufficient to understand that choices have consequences. And we need to, in foreseeing the evil, hide ourselves from it. Why? Because the simple pass on and are punished. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.